you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, is of course best known for the three days in July of 1863, during which it played host to what might have been one of the Civil War's decisive battles. The town, or at least a rural spot outside the town, was also the home of President Eisenhower. But just north of the Soldiers' National Cemetery, where Abraham Lincoln delivered his famous Gettysburg Address, and only a stone's throw from the house where... In one of the battle's more famous incidents, civilian Jenny Wade was accidentally shot and killed by a soldier's bullet, which, by the way, might or might not have been fired by a Confederate sniper, despite what the legends say, is 35 Steinware Avenue. This address, in 1928, played host to the events that led up to the first conviction of a, of a woman for murder in Adams County. At the time, it was the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Iker, as well as their two sons, Percy, 22, and Nevin, 16, and Percy's young wife, Helen, who was then 20. She had been born as Helen Wagner in Hagerstown, Maryland. Her mother, whose name is unknown, died around 1910 when Helen was two. Although other accounts of the event say she died giving birth to her daughter, most agree on 1910 as the date of her death. After the mother had died, Murray Wagner, Helen's father, moved in with his parents, Mr. and Mrs. J. Frank Wagner, and Gettysburg. He died of tuberculosis five years later. Helen then was raised by her grandparents. When she was 15, she met Percy Iker, and two years later, in 1925, they married. She soon gave birth to a son, Percy Jr., who was two in 1928. On the morning of July 10th, 1928, Mr. and Mrs. Iker and Percy Jr. were in Cashtown visiting relatives. Back on Steinware Avenue, at around 9 a.m., Nevin Iker woke hearing some unusual sounds from next door. As he later testified at the coroner's inquest, he awoke to groans from Percy's room, and about a half minute later, I heard a shot. About a half a minute later, Helen came into my room, threw a shotgun on a cot, and said, Get a doctor, I've killed him. When he went downstairs to do so, she told him that he, quote, might as well call a cop as well. Soon, Dr. C.G. Christ, the county coroner, arrived. Dr. Christ said that he found Percy lying on his bloodstained bed. He had been shot once below the left shoulder, 
and a second shot was fired through the headboard of the bed. Percy wasn't yet dead, however, and Christ said that he was insistent on the fact that the gunshot wound was self-inflicted. Helen Eicher was found slumped over the kitchen table. Dr. Christ first thought that she had been shot as well, but she hadn't been. She had tuberculosis, possibly, though of course there's no telling at this point, contracted from her father. The stress of the murder had aggravated her condition, to the extent that she nearly passed out. Her version of the day's events differed, and she freely admitted that she had shot her husband. Both the wounded Percy and an ailing Helen were taken to Warner Hospital only about a block from the Steinware Avenue house. The former Warner Hospital has expanded considerably in the years since, and is now the current-day Gettysburg Hospital. Percy Eicher died four hours later, still insistent upon the fact that he had shot himself. But where he earlier stated that he had flat-out attempted suicide, at the hospital he disclosed that the shooting was an accident, that the shotgun accidentally discharged while he struggled with his wife to take it away from her. The police investigation into the shooting fell to Sergeant Joseph Merrifield of the Pennsylvania State Police. Although Gettysburg did have a police force at the time, I'm assuming it was a very small force and that high-level inquiries were beyond them, as they were in many rural communities at the time. Sergeant Merrifield had in his possession two empty shotgun shells, one found at the stairs at the home, and another one discovered in Helen Eicher's clothing by Nurse Lillian Fleischman when she arrived at the hospital. There was a lack of gunpowder burns on Percy's body, which would seem to refute the story of suicide. There was also evidence that the bullet had entered Percy's body at a downward angle, consistent with its having been fired by someone standing over him as he lay prone. A bloody bullet hole in the mattress directly under Percy's body seemed to confirm this. In addition to this evidence, the statement of Nevin Eicher, outlined above, demonstrated clearly enough what had happened. In fact, Nevin was the sole witness called at the coroner's inquest, which determined that Percy's death was a homicide and that his wife had killed him. The conclusion seemed obvious. And so after what was quite possibly the shortest investigation of any of the stories I've covered on this show was concluded, Percy Eicher was buried on July 20th at Evergreen Cemetery, across the street from his home. Citing a likelihood that undue excitement or activity might aggravate her fragile physical condition and possibly lead to a pulmonary hemorrhage, Dr. Christ forbade Helen from attending the funeral, despite the fact that earlier that day she had been allowed to view the body. By the same reasoning, after being released from the hospital, she was sent to stay at the home of a friend, Mrs. Fred Stearns, rather than being held in jail. No time was wasted in scheduling a trial to be held the next month. District Attorney, District Attorney John P. Butt would prosecute the state's case, and J. Donald Swope would defend Helen Eicher. The case was heard by Judge Donald P. McPherson. Nevin Eicher reiterated his testimony at the coroner's inquest that he had awoken on the morning of July 10th to the sound of gunshots, and that Helen disclosed to him that she had killed her husband. Furthermore, he said, he recognized the shotgun as one belonging to his father. When John Eicher was called later, he confirmed that the murder weapon was, indeed, his. Nevin also told the court that his brother got into arguments with his wife at times, 
but nothing beyond what one would expect from any married couple, and they hadn't been arguing at all on the evening of July 9th. He never heard Helen threaten her husband, and likewise, he had never heard anything about any suicidal feelings on his brother's part. Elmer Warren, who seems to have been employed at the same garage where Percy worked, testified that Helen Eicher had previously attempted to purchase a pistol from him. She maintained that the pistol was for her own protection. She often slept outside for her health, recall that this was a time when merely being in the open air was thought to be therapy enough for tuberculosis. A teenage cousin of Percy's, 15-year-old Anna McLaughlin, testified that she had been threatened by Helen when she said she would tell Percy about her efforts to get a pistol from his co-worker. Later testimony from Helen herself would contradict what she told Elmer Warren. She herself claimed that she was suicidal when she attempted to procure the gun. Several doctors, Dr. Christ, Dr. J.P. Dalby, Dr. E.A. Miller, and Dr. McCutcheon from the sanatorium at Mont Alto, where Helen had spent some time, testified as to her advanced tuberculosis, which had severely damaged both lungs. Helen herself was then called, and said that Percy had disclosed to her at some point that he had been unfaithful. Well, to be fair, her testimony did seem to imply more that she believed that's what he was telling her. It seems he simply said he had something to tell her, and she seems to have just assumed that that's what it was. She said that she and her husband fought about this alleged infidelity often, but recall Nevin's testimony indicating that the two didn't argue to any significant extent. She claimed to have shot Percy accidentally, firing the shotgun into the headboard to scare him. So her story seemed somewhat to confirm his, but that story was disputed by the actual physical evidence, not least the fact that the fatal bullet was apparently the first fired, and not the one in the headboard. One other thing that became apparent during the trial was that although Helen consistently referred to herself as 20, she was actually only 18, making her only 15 when married. This also made her, besides being the first woman convicted of murder in Adams County, one of the youngest of either sex as well. On August 30th, Helen Eicher was convicted of second-degree murder in Percy's death. Taking her condition into account, however, the jury recommended leniency. Almost immediately upon conviction, her attorney J. Donald Swope stated his intention to seek a retrial. Due to this, Judge McPherson deemed that she be remanded to Adams County Prison until any possible retrial was dealt with before being sentenced. But as Helen told the press, I don't care what happens. It doesn't make any difference to me what they do. I haven't long to live anyhow. Why should I care? Attorney Swope outlined eight reasons why a retrial was warranted, among them leading question of witnesses. Foremost in his mind, however, was a medical matter. Though the jury had heard testimony from various medical professionals, they hadn't heard any mention of the potential mental side effects of Helen Eicher's condition. As he wrote in his petition to the judge, advanced tuberculosis, such as the defendant was suffering from at the time of the alleged shooting, would affect her nervous system and mentality and cause her to adopt as reasonable a course of procedure which would not suggest itself to a normally well person. Tuberculosis can, at times, lead to meningitis, a swelling of the brain tissues 
which can cause someone to become confused and disoriented. Whether this would lead someone to potentially commit murder, I can't say, but I could see it as leading one to be overly reckless. In December, it came to light that in an effort to combat her disease, Helen had sought treatment from powwow doctor Andrew Lenhart of York. That's a name which has come up on the show before, during the Ray Myers Hollow episode. The Iker shooting took place only a few months before the murder of Nelson Raymeyer, and it was doubtless the mentions of the consultation of Lenhart by one of the murderers, John Blymeyer, that led to his connection to the Iker case, becoming known shortly after that killing took place. This connection to the so-called Hex Doctors is what initially drew me to the case, although I was somewhat surprised to learn it was a relatively minor part. According to Helen, it was Percy's mother who sought the services of Lenhart and asked him to treat her daughter-in-law. Helen herself was skeptical, calling Powwow, quote, an amusing ignorant fake. Lenhart said that she had been put under a spell by someone. He also advised her to find, remove, and burn the so-called snares in her pillows, and to stop drinking milk. Her mother-in-law sought advice from Lenhart on the resolution of domestic trouble. He advised her to scrape three corners of the kitchen table and to put these scrapings into her husband's coffee. She was then to take a piece of her husband's hair and wrap it around the pendulum of of a clock, and as long as this clock ran, her marriage would be free of problems. When the tuberculosis treatment predictably failed to produce any results, Helen asked Mrs. Eicher to try to get the cost of the treatment, $11.50, back from Lenhart. But Lenhart declined to give the money back, and instead offered a free treatment. Eventually, the district attorney got involved, and after he also failed to get the money back, he wrote a cease and desist letter to Lenhart, ordering him to not only cease contact with the Eichers, but to not practice in Adams County at all. However, Percy's mother was in contact with the press a few days after Helen's story of her encounter with Lenhart was in the newspaper. On December 10th, 1928, she claimed that her daughter-in-law was, quote, a superstitious witchcraft fiend, and that it was she who had sought Lenhart out initially. She said that Helen believed that her grandmother and aunt had placed a spell on her. But anyway, Lenhart was involved in at least three cases where the supposedly hexed individual ended up killing someone. The Ray Meyer case, the Iker case, and another one I can't recall the name of, which I think took place in York City. Andrew Lenhart was involved in legal proceedings, but mostly of a financial nature. The coincidence of there being three separate cases of murder leads one to question whether he may have been saying something during consultations, which gave some murderous ideas, or whether it was all just an unfortunate coincidence. In March 1929, Judge McPherson decided that there was no basis for an appeal, and sentenced Helen Eicher to five to ten years in prison, to be served at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Eastern State had open-air cells for the treatment of inmates with tuberculosis. Sheriff G.D. Morrison removed her from the Adams County Prison and took her to Philadelphia. On March 22, 1929, Helen Eicher, otherwise prisoner number 5233, was received at Eastern State. A bit over a year later, in June of 1930, She developed pneumonia and was admitted to Philadelphia General Hospital. 
Her condition gradually worsened, to the extent it was feared that she would die, and her aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. D.C. Stallsmith, were called to come to Philadelphia. But in the end, she ended up recovering. Although apparently not to any significant extent, because she was still at Philadelphia General upon her death two and a half years later, on November 18, 1932. Helen Eicher was buried on November 21st, next to her father, Murray Wagner, in Evergreen Cemetery in Gettysburg. She was 21 at the time of her death. Percy Jr., the son who was two years old at the time of the murder, also died in, at the age of eight in 1935 of diphtheria. He was taken in by Percy's parents after his father's death and his mother's incarceration. He is buried with his father in Evergreen Cemetery. When looking the graves up, I notice that the gravestones of Percy and Percy Jr. does something I feel like should be done more often, putting pictures of the people buried there on the headstone. I feel like this will be sort of neat. When you're walking through a cemetery and find whichever random grave, you have really no idea who the heck this guy from a hundred years ago is the majority of the time. It would help to remember these people when you can see a picture of that person in life. But anyway, as to Helen's case, I think the medical reasoning behind the appeal advanced by Attorney Swope did, indeed, warrant a closer look. I'm obviously no medical expert, so I can't speak to to what extent meningitis may have contributed to the murder, nor do I know if it was even present in Helen's case, to be honest. But just the possibility should have been looked into. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me any ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.